0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors, to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, I call you Happy Warriors because this show is focused not just on your bodies, but on your souls as well. And every single listener to this show, if you are a regular listener to this show, I can assure you that you have a young and vibrant soul. What is more, we're all Happy Warriors because in order to live productively, you got to fight every single day. you got to fight against the forces of entropy, if nothing else. You fight to maintain your possessions. After all, everything is trying to rust. Everything needs paint. Everything needs constant repairing. That's a fight. You fight to build and maintain your family. Yeah, every single day, there's a challenge there. You fight to maintain your business or your profession or your career because there are challenges to that all the time. Life is a fight, and that's a good thing because to stop fighting, to stop seeking, and to stop striving, well, that's to die. And I call you not just warriors but happy warriors because to throw yourself into the fight... For eight or ten hours a day, six days a week is one thing. But to do all that consistently with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul, well, that means that you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. It means you're devoted to your faith your family, your finances, and your friends, knowing that ultimately you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many evil social pathologies it generates. When I reveal how the world really works, It's in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Judeo Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome, those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media, education, government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. Each of you happy warriors with a gentle giant and a humble heart ready to make a difference. And the difference that I want to discuss today is a difference that is going to be a little alarming, and I'm certainly not suggesting flicking a switch. I'm not suggesting that you have to dramatically change your lives today because meaningful growth comes about through a lengthy succession of countless small changes. Huge, big, cataclysmic changes seldom do much good. And so, uh, you know, I, I like using losing weight as a metaphor because it works and is so applicable to so many other things that we all struggle with in life. But um, if, if if you decide that you want to lose 20 pounds before the summer, or 30 pounds, whatever it is uh, – the idea of sort of setting yourself the task of losing 10 pounds in the next week, uh, it's, it's, it's cataclysmic. It's, uh, it's a huge change. It's not good for your body. It's not going to be able to be lasting. But if you set something much more moderate, and, and I'm, I don't know what that would necessarily be, you know, maybe a pound a week or something like that. I don't know. But if, uh, if you set a moderate goal, and one that you are able to discipline yourself to adhering to week after week, not only would that ultimately bring about the desired big change, but it would also be more likely to be a lasting and durable change. And so, uh, uh, in the same way, I'm going to be telling you about something we've not discussed before, and I'm not in any way suggesting a huge change in lifestyle, but uh, what I am suggesting is... An awareness of this problem, uh, an ability to absorb the implications and make the necessary small changes um, after you've had a chance to think about it, after you've had a chance to decide whether what I'm telling you is true, if you've had a chance to decide what I'm telling you is accurate and applicable and real and is truly how the world really works, uh, then I think you will probably make the necessary decisions that uh, would, would have a beneficial impact on your life. What am I talking about? The shocking information that entertainment is bad. Not a good thing. And so people say, well, you know, I, I, I just enjoy a little entertainment now and then. Fine, I, I know what we all say. I'm as guilty as the next person. But in real terms, in understanding how the world really works, it's valuable to know that entertainment is destructive, both on an individual and on a societal level. What is entertainment? Entertainment is anything that has you passive, sitting in a chair, at a movie theater or a uh, or, or a real theater, um, sitting in the uh, in the pews of of a sporting event, um, uh, even <laughs> even sitting in the pews of a church where there's no participation, where there is no where you're essentially a spectator. And uh, I have seen both churches and synagogues that are. Uh, uh, like that, but all right, that's not the that's not the usual thing. Anything that has you in front of a screen passively, in other words, you're not you're not uh, uh, working, you're not creating something. What does this uh, have to do with video games? Complicated question, and uh, I'm not going to answer that right now. But I will be giving you enough information for you to be able to sort that out for your own purposes, and for the purposes of your own family, uh, all by yourself. But um, realize that reading and conversation are not like that. Reading and conversation do not have the same negative impact that entertainment does. So anyone who says, well, reading a book is exactly the same as watching television, not true, not true at all. Another difference is that When people watch a show, uh, when they engage in this passive entertainment, it tends to create uniformity. Uh, It discourages individual uniqueness. And so, when um, when three or four different people read a book, you end up having you know have you ever been part of a book club? Right, it's wonderful because the the book club agrees on a book that everyone's going to read, and then everyone gets together, and they discuss the book. It's always interesting. Why? Because reading a book does not promote uniformity. It encourages uniqueness. And so every individual in a book club comes away from a book with an entirely different and his or her own unique take. And so exchanging those ideas becomes exciting and invigorating and interesting. However, people come away, for the most part, from a passive visual experience very similar. There are a number of reasons for it. One of them is that uh, the emotions are at play in visual entertainment as opposed to reading or conversation. When you're having a conversation with somebody... Uh, It's what's going on is at a deep cognitive level when you read what's going on is helpful to your mind. But when you're watching a a show or a film or a comedy or a movie, whatever you're watching, uh, what's at play is emotions and emotions are much more similar than our um, ideas, ideas. Emotions, physical sensations. Okay, you know I'm going to have a lot of different people having an interesting conversation about the uh, taste of roast turkey. And people enjoy turkey, and everyone enjoys it in pretty much the same way. Physical sensations are pretty much standard. Uh, if somebody has a wonderful hike and sees a beautiful view and a, a magnificent piece of, s- of natural scenery. Um, they'll want to talk about it, they'll want to share it, but it's going to mostly bore everyone else because everybody gets it, right? Everyone has pretty much the same reaction to a beautiful scene. And so uh, emotions and physical sensations are not different from one another significantly, but ideas are. So that's why I divide up the uh, the world of experience into these three Areas, Ideas, emotions, and sensations. We all pretty much experience sensations identically. Uh, We all are pretty much, right, emotions a little bit more unique than sensations, right? You don't get people writing poetry about uh, roast turkey. Uh, You don't get people even writing poetry about sex. Because sensations are experienced pretty much the same by everybody. And so, if you would imagine a culture based on sensation, you would be having a culture that would be incredibly uniform. Now, it's very difficult to organize a culture around sensation. Um, However, it is done. You have... Um, you have cultures which are incredibly sexualized, and those are become cultures that are based on sensation. and as a result, the people in those cultures uh, become very much like one another, almost indistinguishable. But they do write poems about love because love is an emotion. And there's a little bit more distinctiveness a little more uniqueness, a little bit of you as opposed to me comes out in an emotion. But when we finally reach ideas, then there is a whole lot of individuality because the ideas we have are truly the product of our own individual beings. And so sharing conversations with people about ideas Always interesting conversations with people about emotions. Eh, I got to tell you, I, f- I, f- I start getting uh, a little bored, a little itchy. I need to get moving. Uh, when people start talking about how they feel about things, eh, it it uh, it doesn't it doesn't do much for me. I, I I I need to get out. And when people talk about experience, then I really have very little interest. Um, Have you ever had friends who come back from an exciting vacation? You know, they went somewhere unusual and they they came back with hours of video and pictures and filled with enthusiasm. Um, Be honest. Don't you dread the idea of having to spend an evening with them, listening to them talk about their trip? (laughs) You really don't want to. Why? Because it's just, it's, it's sensations, a little bit of emotion, but nothing in the way of ideas, very rarely. Now, what, what's a little different is every now and then, somebody comes back uh, from a country and says, you know, while I was there, I realized something. And that's the first time in the little travel log that I perk up. What did you realize? Now I'm going to hear an idea that you came up with that's, that's different and unique to you. That's a big thing, and that's, that's something very worthwhile. So I explain all that because I, I want it understood that um, entertainment plays on experience, on sensation and emotion. The, uh, the, the uniformity is not a good thing. And so uh, the way people react to a movie You know, some people will like it, some people won't like it, Uh, but by and large, the feelings that are evoked in you by a movie are absolutely predictable. There's there's not it. It's all shown. It's information through the eyes, which is predominantly emotional. And um, bear in mind also that from the point of view, and I. I'm not going to ascribe evil motives to government always everywhere, but entertainment is very good for governments that like to have power and control. Governments like the early governments of the founders of the United States of America, um, governments in a number of other countries around the world that genuinely do want what's best for their country and what's best for their society – where the politicians are not venal, ego-driven, greedy, but really care about people, they would be less inclined to encourage entertainment. But for governments peopled by less good individuals, entertainment is wonderful. It not only tranquilizes the masses, but more importantly... It renders them susceptible to control. Why? Because of the uniformity we're talking about. Please visit my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, there you will find uh, accumulated writings, collections of previous articles by both Susan Lappin uh, and by me, and every now and then by other people as well, and uh, you will also find the opportunity to subscribe to receiving these on a weekly basis. Also, visit the store and take a look at a resource called The Ten Commandments. I, I don't want to take the time now to tell you about it because you can read about it at rabbidaniellappin.com and discover that everything you thought you knew about The Ten Commandments is only a tiny, tiny microscopic morsel of the entire story. Did you know, in fact, that it is not so much Ten Commandments as five universal statements of connection, each provided with two examples of application? If you're not familiar with that, and you're not aware that the purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to shape societies or build civilization. No, it's in order to help you in your interactions with people on every level, romantic, social, and also business. Rabbi Daniel Lappin. along, as we do on this topic, uh, there are countries and societies where entertainment plays a bigger role, and there are other countries and societies where entertainment plays a smaller role. Now, I'm not by any means a world traveler. Uh, I tend to spend most of my time uh, in the United States. I like vacationing in the summer in British Columbia, Canada. I, um, I have done speech tours in other countries, in Europe, in the United Kingdom, Switzerland, China, uh, and uh, looking at a trip to Africa this coming year. But um, I'm not traveling a lot. And so I cannot say that I, I know and experience a lot of countries. Uh, I should have added Israel in the other because I have the privilege of of visiting there for a few weeks every year. And so, uh, but just from the uh, reading that I do, from talking to people, I have the impression that in the United States of America, entertainment plays a much bigger role than it does elsewhere. Uh, Even the fact that in other countries, a lot of their consumption of entertainment is based on American-produced entertainment. Uh, The word Hollywood really means something in American culture. Uh, Oh, I'm going to work in Hollywood as what? A pediatric surgeon? (laughs) No, you'd never say that. You'd say, I'm moving to Los Angeles. But when somebody says, I'm I'm going to be working in Hollywood – That only means in the entertainment business. The word means something. I don't believe there is an equivalent in the United Kingdom. I'm not sure about France, uh, but certainly in uh, Germany, in Holland, in uh, Switzerland, there are no equivalents. There isn't a sort of a a thing, a place like Hollywood. Uh, From what I gather, maybe India does, but it could also be something that is far more noticeable and something that people are aware of outside the country than inside the country. I don't really know. I've never been to India. But that in the United States, there's a disproportionate focus on entertainment. Uh, I don't doubt that for a moment. I'm sure that that is correct, that we do see a whole lot more. People talk about it more. Uh, you can't open a newspaper, even a paper like the Wall Street Journal, which is a daily paper that has a focus on business, uh, will have uh, a lot of material on on entertainment, not just the business point of view, right? There, there are talks about obviously there are articles having to do with uh, the uh, the share price of different entertainment companies, etc., etc., but. Uh, What the Wall Street Journal has is actually articles about the content and, needless to say, other newspapers uh, to an even greater extent. Uh, In terms of of conversation, again, I've noticed that people will talk. When they get together, uh, they will discuss um, sports, which is entertainment, and they will discuss uh, shows that they've been watching. Uh, or movies that they've been to see. It's a very much larger part of the culture than it is in the United Kingdom, and uh, a country that I do know reasonably well, uh, Israel. Um, It it, it really is not a major part there, although Israel produces uh, some remarkably high-quality television. I have been astounded by the quality that comes out of the small country – Uh, There are some amazing television shows which uh, uh, I actually – my wife and I end up buying uh, on DVD to bring back with us uh, from Israel because otherwise it's hard to see. But we've been really very, very amazed by that. Nonetheless, it's not a culture or a society that is heavy or big on entertainment. Uh, You will see many, many people in the streets in Israel – Uh, During an evening, they'll be at cafes, they'll be uh, walking, they'll be talking. Uh, Much less passive a society than in America today. And that, I think, is very significant. Let me give you another instance of what the problem with entertainment is. So another word for entertainment is amusement, right? We even have amusement parks, but... um, I was amused by it. Okay, what what does that word mean? It's helpful sometimes to actually look at the etymological origins of the word. Now, the word amuse is very similar to words like um, amoral or asymmetrical. Symmetrical means that two sides of an object are identical. So there is an axis around which the object is symmetrical. If something is completely non-symmetrical, then it's called asymmetrical. The word a in front of a word often means not, the opposite of, um, moral. You know, People have spoken in the past about various prominent politicians as completely amoral, meaning that they can lie with complete impunity because there is no sense of morality that they have whatsoever. For ordinary people, lying is a bit uncomfortable, and, and your face shows it. And the whole theory behind a lie detector is that there are physiological responses that your body involuntary causes when you're stressed by lying. But if you are utterly amoral, then you're not stressed by lying at all. And so the, word, the letter A in front, okay, amuse. What does muse mean? Muse is an old English word meaning to think, to contemplate deeply. Um, so, you know, even today I've heard people say, you know, I'm musing about that, meaning I'm I'm still thinking about it. I'm, I've got it under consideration. I'm contemplating it profoundly. And uh, um, artists and writers sometimes speak about having a muse, somebody in their lives that helps them think, helps them create. But uh, the word muse is to be thoughtful and to create amuse to take away thinking, the opposite of thinking. And indeed, one of the purposes that people tend to retreat to entertain, and I use the word retreat to entertainment, um, is exactly that, right? where people uh, seek entertainment to avoid thinking. It's the same reason that people will turn to alcohol or even pornography uh, or sex in general as an alternative to thinking, not for any benefits it brings in and of itself, but in order to avoid the existential pain of thinking. What, is, what does that mean? Well, look, uh, the, the truth is that human beings are very susceptible to self-loathing. Uh, we are self-conscious creatures. Un- as far as we know, unlike dolphins or elephants or baboons or mosquitoes, uh, we are very conscious of ourself. And we are conscious of our goals and dreams and we're conscious of our abilities, we're conscious of our flaws and failings. And as a result of that, it is very easy for us to become overwhelmed by a sense of internal unhappiness, dissatisfaction, even shame and embarrassment. And, and that's just part of the, uh, the cost of being a human being. However, uh, Judaism and Christianity do provide mechanisms for dealing with that. I'll only speak about uh, Judaism because it's the only one I, I really understand. Uh, but there is an atonement process in Judaism, which is really important. And it's not just annually on the Day of Atonement, but there are actually occasions during the course of the year where it is possible to shed the psychological and existential package of anxiety and discontent that accumulates in, in any busy active life. Um we all, we all suffer from it, and if you don't have that way of getting rid of it, of turning over a new leaf and a fresh start, which is one of the functions, I think, that uh, a new year fills, right? It's, maybe it's even part of the uh, happiness that people feel at the time uh, that January the 1st approaches an opportunity for a new beginning. But at the same time, it's also, I think, an opportunity for uh, um, accentuation of of just what I was talking about in the sense that people say, oh, man, another year, and I haven't achieved the things I've set for last year, and so on and so forth. And so um, to avoid thinking about these things, to take away the pain of thinking, uh, people do drink, people find refuge in other behaviors and activities. Entertainment is probably the most common one because while you are uh, watching something, it promotes a passivity in us. It's not only that we are passive, but it actually aggravates the passivity. And so when you're watching a television show, when you're watching a movie, Your internal cognitive process has been brought to a complete halt. And the key thing to understand is that when you repeatedly do something, we're creatures of habit. Our bodies and our psyches learn. And so when we constantly subject our bodies to an activity that stops us thinking, Don't be surprised if our general cognitive abilities decline along with that. Now, you can imagine how damaging this is on a national level. What happens to a society where large numbers of people are less aware, less conscious, less thoughtful, less contemplative, and ultimately less creative? Yes, that is absolutely right. We can look at uh, parts of our societies. There are demographic clumpings in our societies, right? There are um, uh, students, right? people who are at university uh, or colleges. Um, there are people who are educators. There are politicians. Uh, there are people who work very hard at jobs, There are other people who do not work harder jobs. There are people who seek out jobs where underperformance is a way of life. Many of those jobs are governmental jobs. Not all of them, but many of them are. Many of them are in the nonprofit sector, again. So there are lots and lots of ways of dividing people in our society. Um, Among the least interesting, of course, is race, gender, and class. Uh, but then we can count on Marx to get it wrong almost all the time. At any rate, uh, I put it to you that if you kept your eyes open for the next week and looked around, both in what you see, what you hear, and what you read, you will find that people who are the least productive in society are the heaviest consumers of entertainment, the more time they spend in a passive activity, watching sports, watching movies, watching anything at all, entertainment, Any the more time that people spend on entertainment, don't be surprised if they also are among the least creative, least productive, least active people in society. I think it could be said that If a foreign evil power that wished a country evil, a foreign power wished to weaken a society, they wanted to weaken uh, a country. If the United States of America had a smart enemy that wanted to undermine and diminish the ability of the United States to remain a significant power in the world of geopolitics, they couldn't have come up with a better plan than Hollywood. They couldn't have come up with a better plan than to uh, poison American hearts and minds with entertainment. Now, I know that uh, this probably sounds a little bit exaggerated and a little bit extreme, and um, and it may well be a little bit. But if I'm going to convey any value to you at all, it is at least in Presenting to you an idea, at an at a level of intensity that doesn't uh, stimulate every rejection instinct in your body, and so I really don't want you to turn me off with disgust and say, "Oh, this is completely ridiculous," and so I'm I'm trying to present it in uh, in in its mildest terms that consumption of entertainment is destructive for you. It hinders and handicaps you in all the important areas of life. Uh, your social connections, your family connections, your business connections. The more time spent in entertainment, not only is a time that is not being spent on building and nurturing and maintaining those relationships, but worse than that, it is actually diminishing your capacity to form relationships. That's right. That, and and here I'm not exaggerating in any way at all. Again, I ask you not to say yes or no at this moment. I ask you not to say, yeah, that's true or that's not true. I ask you to bring it into your laboratory of life experience. And, Open yourself now to this idea that the more time that people spend in their life on entertainment, the less adept they are at human interaction. And look around. Watch. And I think you will find that this actually does work out to be very much the case. Um, all right. Head off to rabbi RabbiDanielLappin.com. And... Uh, Invest in your copy of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Useful, applicable, practical, valuable. Discover the five principles of relationships. In all areas, by the way. And learn how to apply those five principles to improve all relationships in your life. A far, far better alternative than entertainment. All right, let's move on. So, uh, what are we supposed to do with this idea that uh, entertainment is not really a valid way to spend any time at all in, in the ultimate. Well, if anybody were to ask me, I'd say, well, what you should do is get a timer app on your phone and then diligently start it every single time you start spending some time on entertainment and stop it when you quit, and let it accumulate up during the week so that at the end of the week you can arrive at a figure of how much of your week you devoted to entertainment. That's what I would say. If somebody would ask me what to do about it, I'd say, well, first of all, establish a metric. Find out how much time you actually do devote to entertainment. And uh, needless to say, that does not apply to listening to audible books. It doesn't apply to listening to any of the audio programs you will find on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin uh, website. No, but it does apply to everything we would think of as entertainment, including watching any sporting activities. It does not include playing sports, right, because that's not passive. You're actually doing something. And then once you've got the metric, once you actually know how much time you are devoting to entertainment, that'll g- give you uh, some way to make a determination. Is that appropriate? Is, uh, what else could you be doing with that time? Well, I'll tell you what else you could be doing with that time. You could be increasing your ability to expand wisdom. You could become a wiser person. Now, one thing to make very clear is entertainment gives you zero wisdom at all. It's pretty obvious, right? Because the purveyors and creators of entertainment want you to watch it, and uh, acquiring wisdom is not easy. So they're not going to give you material that adds to your wisdom. They give you material that is very seductive, that you suck in completely painlessly until... At the end of it, you look and see how much time you've let go on entertainment, and then it becomes very painful as you assess that. But uh, uh, you could be uh, devoting time to acquiring wisdom. You could be devoting time to expanding your social connections, making more friends, uh, maintaining relationships, uh, sending some handwritten notes to people that are important in your life. You could be doing all of those things. Uh, you could be increasing your income, right? You could be spending some of that time that has been going on entertainment, could be going to build income with the ultimate goal of increasing your passive income flow, which means that you've got to have more money coming in than you spend so as you can devote some of that, if not all of that, to building a passive income flow through investment or through uh, expansion of business opportunities, whatever it is. But there, there's so many worthwhile things that could be. You, that could be done in the time that has been hitherto devoted to entertainment, and when you look at the balance sheet and you ask yourself, "Well, what did I get from the hours spent on entertainment?" The answer, obviously, is absolutely nothing at all. That's true. It was, it was like, um, it was like eating sugar. Right. Eating sugar or or eating something pleasurable but unhealthy for you, um, the the overall cost to your being is real. It's the, the it's a negative result that flows from that, and so it is with entertainment. And so that that just gives you a, an overall view of um, of of what entertainment really is. Um, it's not good for individuals, it's not good for society, and uh, it's 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 seductive. It's even, uh, to some extent, I think, addictive for many people. So to just become aware of that, and particularly if you are at a critical phase of child-rearing, the temptation to stick a child in front of a video uh, – it's, it's almost overwhelming. It's very, very strong. I understand it. And there are even some good parents who say, oh, I'd never do that, but when I'm with my children at a restaurant, I'll give them the iPad or the phone to watch something so that they won't disturb other diners. Well, look, um, of course it's harder to engage your children, but you've got to ask yourself what is better. Uh, The idea that children will learn vocabulary and grow by watching entertainment, not true. Simply not true. Uh, It is a passive activity for them just as it is for you. And uh, all cognitive processes uh, shut down other than those basically necessary for just a fundamental understanding of what's going on on the screen. But the notion that anything of value is being retained is simply false. It's just not there. What we know uh, as a, a reality is that children's ability to communicate is most impacted by parents talking to them during the critical years from birth. Yes, that's right, from birth to two years old. Those first 24 months, the more they hear from their parents talking to them and engaging them, reading to them from a book, engaging them in conversation, that is what really makes the difference. And uh, and so if you want your children to have a good life, then you really wouldn't want them to spend any time on entertainment at all. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Is that realistic in, in practical terms? Only each one of us can decide that for our own families. But... Uh, You know, I want to tell you the story that um, uh, – it's rather remarkable. There was a guy called Oscar Lewis. You know I like talking about interesting people. Well, in the 20th century, uh, there's a marvelous anthropologist I've spoken about called um, uh, Joseph Daniel Unwin. I've told you about him in previous – he got discredited and basically uh, deprived of his fame and of his rightful position simply because – he arrived at the conclusion after the studying of many cultures and the studying of civilization, he arrived at the very politically incorrect conclusion that, uh, marriage between a man and a woman is a vital prerequisite for creating a civilization. So Unwin, uh, became a nobody to everyone except listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Appen show where I go out of my way to make sure you do know about the important people. And, uh, And so you can talk about uh, Unwin as one of the greatest anthropologists of the 20th century, and uh, people will be astounded because most people won't have heard of him. Although if you went to university in America and you studied anthropology up until about, uh, well, 1960, as I tell you, uh, you absolutely would not only have known about Unwin, you'd have venerated him. Well, there's somebody else you would have venerated as well, and that's a guy called Oscar Lewis who uh, who really was would have been one of the most famous anthropologists. However, he did a really unforgivable thing. By the way, he had everything going for him because he was a Marxist. He was known to be a Marxist. He acknowledged being a Marxist. He was proud of being a Marxist. And so, not surprisingly, in the halls of academia, they just loved him. Well, anyways, <clears throat> he studied poverty, and um, he ends up, and everyone expected he was going to end up saying, do you know what the culprit is in poverty? Capitalism. Capitalism is the root cause of poverty, right? It's got to be. And he didn't do that. Give the man credit. My goodness, he's a Marxist. He has an outcome he wants to see today. How many academics are there today who would um, go against their instincts, go against their positions and tell the truth? They don't do it. They absolutely won't do it, and they won't allow anyone else to do it as well. That's the code of silence on the campus and in academia today. But Oscar Lewis, um, I give him enormous credit, um, studies poverty and comes up that uh, the poverty is caused largely, and these are his words, by irresponsible behavior of the poor themselves. Impulsive sex, poor work habits, substance abuse. Violence and cruelty to children are very bad ways to make money or to stretch family budgets. Uh, Any sensible, low-income person would avoid them like the plague. Right? Isn't that interesting? What a difference. Um, You know, instead of saying what everyone wanted him to say, which was capitalism is designed to keep workers obedient, working for nothing... But um, the true culture of poverty, said Oscar Lewis, is impulsive sex, poor work habits, substance abuse, violence, cruelty to children. Those are the things. Um, how's about in the area of homelessness? Homelessness. Um, the, the definitive book on homelessness uh, from the early 90s uh, was written by Baum and Burns, Alice Baum and Donald Burns, And they write, homelessness is a condition of disengagement from ordinary society, from family, friends, neighborhood, church, and community. Poor people who do have family ties, teenage mothers who have support systems, mentally ill individuals who are able to maintain social and family relationships, alcoholics who are still connected to their friends and jobs, even drug addicts who manage to remain part of their community, do not become homeless. Homelessness occurs when people no longer have relationships. They've drifted into isolation, running away from the support networks they could count on in the past. This is really very important. You want to know what people should rather be doing instead of experiencing entertainment? Building relationships, working, increasing their skills, increasing their wisdom. There are so many things we could be doing. And that's why it is that I said that, uh, that anybody who wished the United States ill and wanted to hurt this country could hardly have done better in their quest to inflict damage on America, could hardly have done better than by building up this culture of entertainment where entertainment is like the most important thing. Where people feel a need to be knowledgeable about shows and movies, and they have to be able to talk about it, and uh, television is uh, is is a drug that has caused large scale addiction. Again, I, I don't think I'm over exaggerating in any way the the impact of it, but I just thought it would be worthwhile devoting a show to um, to describing. Uh, the world in which entertainment has gone rampant, it's gone riot. And so, all right, do I really believe anybody can shut it out and switch it off? No, no. But is it possible to unplug to some degree and to diminish the impact of uh, entertainment on my life and on the life of my children and my family? Yeah, I, I think so. Particularly uh, if you... Um, Open up your family to conversations on the topic. Basically, uh, maybe a family-wide project to time the amount of time that gets wasted on entertainment. Maybe a a family-wide project on discussing what you get in exchange for that time. Even just the idea that uh, one of the hardest things for human beings to learn is that every passage of time has to be accounted for. In other words, if a day has gone by, you've got to be able to say, in what way have you gained from the expenditure of that day? That's important, that's worthwhile, and it's an exercise that each and every one of us should engage in. It can only make life better. It is not an accident that homeless people, it's not an accident that uh, poverty-stricken people um, are in many ways and very often the biggest consumers of entertainment. Right? And you'll, you'll read it, bit if, if you study the homeless phenomenon, they may be homeless, but they are not without their video abilities. They are watching videos. Uh, you, pe- and people who work in the field will tell you that the uh, blue glow comes from tent encampments, as the so-called homeless are avidly watching, uh, either on small televisions or on computers, or on tablets, they're watching. The idea that these people do not have the ability to watch entertainment because they're working so hard—it's simply not true. And uh, and similarly in the world of poverty, uh, you know, we're very concerned about poverty levels in America. But how come that poverty, poor people, are among the largest consumers of entertainment? Caseworkers and social workers talk of going into homes where large numbers of poor people live, and what what is an absolute staple is the television blaring uh, in the rooms, continues nonstop. Nobody is switching off the entertainment, so there it is. Not a good thing, worth worth making a family project about. Worth talking about it at any rate. That's as far as we go today. Uh, next week, more in the next follow-up show, but for now, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapin, wishing you good times in the week ahead, good times with your family, good times with your friends, good times faith-wise, and with your finances. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand